It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Satyam Katamini, co-founder, managing partner, and chief experience officer for UX Reactor. The company was founded back in 2014 together with his brother Prasad, and under their leadership, UX Reactor has become the fastest growing specialized experience design firm in the USA, with a team of over 60 employees spread over three continents. Before starting his entrepreneurial journey, Satyam served as managing director of product design at Citrix, and prior to that was instrumental in building PayPal's global design center in India while leading a design team based in Silicon Valley. He is an alumnus of Harvard Business School's famed general management program, studied design thinking at Stanford University, and holds a master's degree in human factors from Wright State University. Through UX Reactor, Satyam is demonstrating that user experience can and should drive enterprise-wide innovation and business outcomes, and has enabled clients to generate multiple billions in additional value from user-centered innovation. He lives in Pleasanton, California with his wife and children. Satyam Kantamini, welcome into the corner office. Thank you. It's a pleasure and a privilege being here, Brent. Great to have you here today. I know we've spoke several months ago. We've had uh, conflicting schedules and, of course, the winter <laughs> flus that have prevented us from coming together. But uh, I'm glad we could both make it today. Where, where do we find you today on your podcast? Uh, I'm actually in uh, the suburbs of San Francisco Bay Area. A city called Pleasanton is where uh, I'm located, and I live like a couple of miles away. Nice, nice, great. Well, I know you didn't uh, grow up there, uh, and so we want to get a little bit to that later in the story. But let's first talk about your early years. I know you're an immigrant. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Sure. Uh, I actually grew up in uh, in India, and my journey there. So I, I, I technically I've, I've actually now crossed, uh, I'm more, I've lived more time in America than actually in India. <laughs> That's, it's interesting that I kind of uh, state that just because, you know, it's just been uh, an interesting journey. But I've lived my first 20, 24 years, 22 years in India. I was, I was born there. Uh, I was born in an, uh, an army family uh, and uh, traveled across India and then kind of uh, basically moving like any military family in most countries. Uh, countries you're moving every few years and you're putting your roots in new locations and learning new things and a country as diverse as india it was fascinating because you're learning new languages new cultures new you know uh, cuisines 
Um, and overall, that just became part of uh, the journey there. And then was your father, was your dad a career officer or your mother, perhaps? My father was a career officer. My yeah. father's younger brother was a career officer. My mm -hmm. father's sister was married to a career officer. So a lot of uh, the services and the ethos of soldiering has actually very much left in my, my, my ethos. So lots of different schools probably too, as you moved around a bit. Absolutely. Seven schools to complete my high school. Wow. So was that, uh, it sounds like it was a very interesting thing. I've, I've had an opportunity to travel India. I think I told you I lived in Singapore for about 10 years. So I, yes. I did get a chance to travel a lot, but, uh, I know just how diverse, uh, India is probably one of the most diverse countries, certainly in South in South Asia. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was a fascinating journey. I wish. And again, I'm, I'm a lot of what I am today is obviously those exposures I've gotten then. Um, and um, I'm very, very privileged to have gotten that. Was it hard moving from school to school, though? Because I know that uh, the Indian education system is very rigorous, uh, from what I understand. And, um, you know, standards are quite high. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, again, uh, it's not uh, Indian education system is diverse state to state. Uh, and it's, it's got a lot of different varieties of uh, curriculums, the languages that you learn. Uh, but then as a student, I didn't uh, understand that, you know, you could actually have a same teacher all through your math program or whatever, and the same curriculum that you're working through. And I, I see this, my kids today in America, they're studying in the same school district for pretty much their whole school time. I think that's a luxury that we didn't have. Uh, so you're learning different styles, different flavors of teaching. Um, and again, it, it, it was what it is. It was, that was just the norm. And so we all took it for granted. Uh, and, uh, but High school education, I think, in India is, is still pretty high uh, quality. Uh, and then uh, comes the real rigor of uh, going through a professional program, which I did my engineering in India. Uh, and that itself was, again, a very rigorous process of getting into the program and then obviously completing it. So, uh, again, I, I think uh, all in all, uh, that I now in hindsight think that, you know, yeah, I mean, it's a very different system. At that point, it just seemed to be, well, that's what everyone was doing, and I was doing the same. It is what it is, right, exactly. Now, I know you have one brother. Your brother's involved in the business. Any any sisters or other brothers in the family? No, just one brother, two boys. Yeah. Got it. And uh, thinking back kind of over those early years, you know, what are some of the memories that you take away, particularly from, you know, lessons maybe that you had from your parents or, you know, other relatives or maybe coaches or, you know, folks that the teachers that were involved in your younger years? So I think family obviously leaves the first impression for everybody in my case, too. Uh, my grandfather was a very successful entrepreneur. Uh, and uh, but then he uh went he saw the success and the failure in the same generation so mm -hmm. so my parents and all uh they decided to kind of go and uh, go into the services sector uh and 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 therefore they all you know went and got a job and obviously they were uh, they they joined the services the the military services uh and for me i grew up and and hearing the grandfather's entrepreneurial stories and then <laughs> the seeing the military ethos that you know all my family around me immediate family was living and so those left a big impression overall. And uh, and I think I've gotten uh, a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I actually believe that, you know, together when humans come together, they do a lot of great things. Uh, they uh, it's a you need to have a common mission and a purpose. Uh, and uh, and I look at that same way. I look I think of entrepreneurial entrepreneurs more as problem solvers. 
uh, again in a business context but then uh, if you can bring the right team and if you can focus on the right problem there's a lot can that can be done so i think those are probably what i would say are key things um, obviously diversity and uh, adapt adapting to different cultures and adapting to different uh, uh, contexts was actually a big part of uh, what i learned all through again as i said earlier that was something i took for granted then but i really appreciated when i compare myself with a lot of the people who have been in, in maybe a single track all their life uh, so again these are things that uh, i continue to kind of ponder on and continue to kind of uh, use as my compass as i make decisions I know that the Indian, you know, education system is very rigorous. We've talked about that earlier. Um, but did you pursue some entrepreneurial things? Was there time to do that as you were growing up, or or was that not so much a part of the culture as it is here? Actually, I my parents actually uh, allowed me to do an experiment a lot of things. Um, so uh, I actually did door to door sales in my eleventh grade, and I no kidding for, for three months. I was like trying to sell computer education. Uh, and uh, going door to door, and that that taught me a quite a bunch of things. Uh, right after I finished my undergrad in engineering, I actually tried to assemble computers myself and sell it around in the community, and uh, took off, uh, but didn't build a business model. And realized that you know, uh, learned my first lesson that you know, just selling a computer or two here and there is good pocket money, but it's not a good business overall to kind of do things. And uh, but anyway, nuances like these. So again, I would always try and 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 that do things. Uh, but they were, I would say more pocket money and more experiences today that kind of have helped me. But uh, uh, building an enterprise, building a successful enterprise is a very different endeavor. And uh, But again, uh, the essence of trying something and trying to go and do something from a scratch always remained. Now, I know you went on to, is it Omaz, Osma, Osmania University? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, that's it's actually the university that's <clears throat> In Hyderabad, India, which is South India, so that's a pretty accomplished university uh, in Hyderabad, and I, I graduated from there. Is that where you kind of ended up at the end of, uh, you know, the the journey, or where Dad was at the time when you decided to go on to school, or was that a, a school that you selected to go to for your engineering degree? So uh, I think it's it's one of those things that happens fairly common in, in the in the Indian military families. Uh, so right around a final uh, uh, high school and engineering, my mom uh, moved over to Hyderabad with both the sons, uh, both me and my brother. And uh, we both finished our final part of our education because that's the most crucial part when you kind of before you start kind of building your professional career. So we moved to Hyderabad and then I got admitted to a pretty decent program in Osmania University. And then I, I kind of continued there and finished my program there. Uh, and the same with my brother. He also finished his um, um, undergrad and uh, and a part of his master's uh, in uh, India before we both moved to the United States to continue our education. Sounds like you two are very close. What's the age difference between you and Prasad? Uh, three years. <clears throat> three years. Yeah, awesome. Three years. So, He's older. Yeah, okay, got it. And you went on to Wright State University, uh, and I believe you studied in um, human factors engineering. Was that what your master's uh, degree was in, finally? Absolutely. So both of yeah. us actually. Uh, so he, he got a double master's, Prasad, uh, in computer science and uh, and uh, human factors. I had no idea what human factors was. So he uh, so when he would describe it, and he would often describe it as something I would do and enjoy. And I had like I had no idea what human factors was. It was nowhere in my purview. Uh, but then. Uh, uh, he would keep saying that. And then like any younger brother, you're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, and you kind of move forward with that. But then eventually I did actually take a course uh, in uh, what at that point was called human computer interface design and thoroughly enjoyed it. 
and uh, in fact, I aced my program. I had 100 out of 100, and I got all A's in that program. And uh, so at the end, uh, end of it, I said, no, I actually think I want to kind of consider going to Human Factors. And uh, he connected me to... Uh, uh, the professor that he was working with. Now, the one story I haven't shared here is uh, I, all my life, I was actually preparing to be an army officer. Ah, I was going well, to ask you about that, yeah, particularly yeah. with the history of service in your family. Yeah, so that's exactly what I was intending to do. So right after high school, uh, I intended to join the military academy, which is a fairly uh, you know selective process, uh, similar to America. Uh, and when you want to go to any of the academies here, uh, I actually... Uh, got recommended by the, the interview panel, uh, but I was um, uh, what they call PR permanent rejection. I got a PR in, uh, for being colorblind. Mm. Uh, and uh, so obviously the Indian Army doesn't take uh, so officers or soldiers who are colorblind because that's right. a part, part of the thing. So I actually got a PR and then I had to go change and pivot at that point to kind of another career. Uh, and then I continued to do engineering. So that was kind of the path I, I took. Uh, and... Uh, but uh, when I went to Wright State, so now connecting the dots there, uh, Wright State was fascinating because human factors had a lot of research grants that was coming from the defense industry. Mm. Uh, and uh, in uh, 2002, uh, I was just studying human-robotic interaction, uh, today what we know as uh, drones and unmanned aerial vehicles. So I was studying how humans interact with unmanned aerial vehicles in complex environments and then designing and understanding that human performance yeah. in that context. So again, t- uh, two things came together. Uh, and uh, it was fascinating. And, and again, that ended up becoming basically my career uh, for the next 20, 25 years. Right. So it's, it's been a journey. What was that first job you took coming out of Wright State? So right after Wright State, I uh, so one of the things we study in human factors is the human part of anything. So when you study human robotic interaction, you, you assume that how would the human interact with the system? Uh, and uh, so you study a lot of research techniques on how humans, uh, you know, behave, their performance, etc. So uh, I continued that line of work and uh, as a user researcher, so studying how users interact in systems. And my first job was in an uh, actually uh, I did an internship with Siemens, uh, and then right after that got a full time job at uh, a pretty good uh, design firm in Columbus, Ohio, called Lextent. Uh, as a user researcher studying uh, mm. and how people interact in systems or what issues existed in their interaction with systems. So that kind that was my first job. Tell us a little bit about what that is, because I think for a lot of our audience, this may be a job that some of us aren't familiar with. I know that's true with me. <laughs> so, so what does a user experience architect do? A user experience researcher. So a right. researcher, so I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, I designed, like, we are today surrounded by systems. Uh, and and technology systems. And it could be your phone, it could be your TV, it could be anything. Everything is a technology system. How you interact with it uh, is is as a what we call human in the in the loop in the system. Uh, it it changes. Like my mom, if I give her a remote and say, can you uh, increase the contrast? As she, she may not even know how to kind of go about it. Uh, I'm just giving an example. Or, or you ask my kid to kind of go do something they would not do about it. They would not know how to go about it. So you actually, as a researcher, you study that. You study how people are uh, perceiving, uh, uh, mm-hmm. interacting with the system. Where is where is it hard? What's the journey? Uh, and uh, I'll give you an example. And uh, we 
uh, as a company, we we do a lot of user research with products. So uh, we worked with this uh, security camera company that is very well known in America, but I'll not name them uh, for NDA reasons. But uh, they, you can go in Costco and buy the security camera. But then the unboxing experience, you have to first unbox it, you have to set it up, you have to kind of, uh, you know, uh, install it, you have to do all those things. Now, as a researcher, we are studying how do you unbox it, how do you set it up? So we identify what we call points of friction. Mm. We kind of identify points of opportunity. Points of friction could be, hey, I don't even know, I need to download an app. Like, like how do we tell them? So these are nuances that we are studying as researchers. And then we, we fine tune it, we clean it up, we make it better. Uh, and in this case, we found 12 different friction points. So that's what a user researcher does. They're studying yeah. how users interact with the system. Cool, cool. Well, you went on to do wonderful work with a couple of great companies. I know you've spent about four or five years at PayPal and then six years at Citrix. And I, I, I know the Citrix organization, having lived in Santa Barbara, I know they got you know some of their founding there from years and years ago. So, so in those particular jobs, again, doing the same thing, helping them, uh, understand how consumers react with their products? Is that is that more or less how to describe your work there? Absolutely. So the, yeah. the, the work that we do in today, uh, today is framed under an umbrella called user experience design. Uh, so any technology system has to have an element of user experience design. That means how do how does the company actually design how the users will experience that product or that system? Uh, and one part of that is user research. One part of it is the design part. One part of it is, uh, you know, the just the look and feel and everything else that goes into it. So that together is what uh, is called user experience design. Uh, so I always say that if you ever use a, a really good product, a technology product, and it, you enjoy your experience with it, it, that means somebody has actually spent the time designing it and thinking <laughs> through it. Uh, and, uh, you know, just the same way as, you know, you would go into a Ritz-Carlton and say, I love the check-in experience. I like the, you know, the, the smell of the exterior. All that is designed by someone uh, in the same way. So that's kind of what I would do. And I, I did for, you know, pretty much uh, 16 years in, uh, inside companies like, as you called out, PayPal, Citrix, Fidelity, etc. cetera, uh, before I decided to kind of go on and do my own. And they would have departments actually dedicated to this, right? I mean, that's absolutely, kind of, absolutely, yeah, yeah. and departments with hundreds of people in some of the companies. Wow, wow! And and is it mostly just technology companies that do this, Satyam, or or are there other companies that have adapted that as well? I think it's 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 actually technology companies are are are. A, I would say laggards in this adoption. Mm. Uh, service design. So when you look at restaurant experiences, you know hospitality experiences. Uh, those ex- as a word experiences. Any any person, any user, any customer experiencing the product that you're buy- selling. When it could be you know whatever product you're selling it could be a service or a product uh, has always had experience designers. Uh, and uh, but then in the technology world, it's kind of more recent, especially given that, you know, any given person at any given point is interacting with four to five systems. Uh, and uh, and if it's not thought out, thought out right, it's, it's and again, today's world, if it's hard to use, people will return it. If it's hard to use, right. people will go and change it. So which is why user experience becomes more and more important. Uh, because no more would anyone take on with the crap of like, you know, hey, it'll take me two days to install it and five days to troubleshoot it. You know, that's that's gone. And, and again, you look, time anymore to do that. Yeah. And you look at vehicles, cars that actually uh, in physical, a lot of the design part came from physical systems like 
cockpit design which is why military actually was very involved in you know car hmi human machine interface as they would call it uh so and that's why the companies like tesla and everybody are doing really well because they think through the experience uh, of how you buy it how you could troubleshoot it how you leverage it etc now is most of this on the front end as the products being designed or do they kind of okay oh we've made something now we've got to figure out how to explain to people how to use it where where, where does that fall that's the wrong way of doing it absolutely yeah. <laughs> where uh, you you build it and then you figure out how to build an experience uh, the philosophy that we uh uh espouse and we kind of share a lot about is you need to know your user really well and mm-hmm. every user is different uh, and every user's context is different if you so you need to understand the user you need to understand their journey and their experience and then you design that journey and experience and then you kind of uh, engineer it uh, mm-hmm. the, most companies uh, in our line of work unfortunately go the other way around they first engineer it yeah uh, because they can and then they go figure out how do i you know build a good experience with it and then they've struggled with it uh and it's a very deliberate process and uh, many companies don't even you know spend the time knowing their user and journey which is kind of where we started our conversation early on with empathy uh, and yeah. empathy is a big part of that because if you don't know your user you don't know why they are what they're doing what their context is you know and it 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 actually will uh, backfire in the long run and and again as i said you know people will then react with returning the product or not using the product and that that's not why you're building or investing millions of dollars I remember in my early days growing up as a brand manager at Procter & Gamble, we did a couple of things that really provided some amazing insights. One of them was called home visits, right? We would literally go to people in their home and, you know, not watch them shower, but watch them how to use soap or, you know, laundry detergent or diapers. And of course, focus groups, of course, was a big part of it. And, you know, it was amazing to be able to just sit there, really, truly listen and understand that, you know, A, people use things very differently, but but to really try to gain that insight into, you know, the, those types of improvements, the type of betterments that they can come to. It was, it was fascinating. Absolutely. And by the way, th- both those are examples of user research techniques. Yeah. Uh, so we call them immersive methods where you immerse yourself in their life and you follow them through in their day and then you kind of see how they're using or not using and then you take you collate that across many people and uh, that's how you kind of identify opportunities and uh, problems now i think it was about the time maybe it's got the timing a little bit off but i think when you left citrix was when um, uh, you founded you and your brother founded ux reactor is that about right that's right yeah. And what was the motivation behind that? Did you just kind of feel that, you know, there was a there's a larger message here or that, you know, individual consulting could be a better way about doing it? What what made you kind of decide to leave the corporate world and do this on your own? So I, I think there was a f- fundamental friction point uh, for driving good experience design in the world uh, and in technology products. And, and the fundamental problem was uh, people were not up approaching it as a, a multidisciplinary pro- uh, problem-solving method. So, uh, so when, especially given that, it, so I'll give you uh, some context. So, when I was running my teams in, in different organizations, uh, we were hiring from design programs. We were hiring from a lot of different angles. And then when people came in, they were coming in like, "I'm a designer. I'm a researcher," uh, and so they come in and play their roles. And we felt this was actually. Uh, we, our belief, our fundamental belief was that we needed a, a multidisciplinary practitioner. Uh, 
Mm. We needed a polymath, uh, and uh, I talk about it in my book too. Uh, a, somebody who can actually bring in different facets of how to think about uh, solving a problem, uh, and. Uh, because of when people come in and just play uh, fundamental their own roles as a silo, uh, it doesn't drive outcomes. You, so a, a good designer should be able to talk engineering. A good designer should be able to talk business. A good designer should be able to also uh, design. A good designer should be able to think about strategy. So that's kind of what I mean by multidisciplinary. So we actually made it a thing like, how can we go groom people that actually will solve it the same way? So uh, if I was going to give you a military analogy, uh, my intention was how might we actually create a Navy SEAL team, mm. an equivalent of that in this context of uh, building experience design. Now, before that, I'll actually maybe take a quick, uh, you know, segue. If you think of innovators and, and, and fundamentally, who's an innovator? Innovator actually knows or, or identifies a problem and then experiments around it and then builds uh, something that of, of, uh, of, of uh, value. And if you think about designers, that's exactly what they're doing. They're talking to users, they're doing user research, they're identifying the problem, they're coming back and they're designing to solve that problem in the technology context and then iterating on that and then building a solution. But then I found that many designers wouldn't even frame themselves as innovators. And then that was the fundamental issue. And they were waiting for someone else to tell them what the problem is and they would design it. And and we felt that that's not the way to approach it. So we said, let's go groom our own talent. We created our own process around that. And that's how the genesis of UX Reactor came to be. Got it. Got it. And uh, you and your brother co-founded that. Now, was he kind of in a similar path, uh, working in corporate user experience types of exp- uh, things, uh, uh, companies as well, or, or was he on a, a different path before the two of you joined? No, we forward? actually, interestingly, uh, we both got the same degree in human factors, right. uh, but we both ended up in different parts of uh, functions of, uh, you know, uh, building our expertise. So he, uh, for the long, he actually kept. He started as a user researcher. Uh, had a computer science degree, so he had multidisciplinariness from being think like an engineer, but then you know, or, or think like a, uh, a human factors person, but have deep skills in engineering. I also had a background in engineering, but then I started as a user researcher, in fact, like him. But then I quickly moved into design, proper design, and in, uh, what we call interaction design, and then from there I went to design leadership. Uh, so uh, that was kind of where we both kind of invested in different parts of the skills in different organizations. So he had stints at Honeywell and Yahoo and uh, a little time at Microsoft when his search division was sold from Yahoo to Microsoft. But anyway, so uh, so that's when we connected and we kind of discussed, uh, you know, hey, we've been at, taking it at different ways, but we are not getting good outcomes because mm-hmm. many companies had invested, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in this line of work, but not getting there. Uh, completely. And so that's why we said, let's kind of go try that out in our way. And then that's when we got together. So, so what is that, you know, kind of that secret sauce? What do, what do you offer now as UX Reactor to companies? Is it the stage at which they involve you? Is it greater insights? Tell us a little bit about kind of your, you know, uh, your secret sauce. I, I, to be honest, it's, it's, it's not a lot of secret sauce, but it is a lot of rigor. Yeah. Uh, and the, the rigor is uh, you need to really spend time with your users, understand what what make, works for them, what the journey is, what the pain points are, and do it as a consistent process. It can't be done like, you know, when you wish, you cannot be doing it, uh, you know, whenever. So that's the first part. So, uh, and again, the philosophy that we have, say, I would say the secret sauce is always follow the user. 
yeah. you know, follow the user, understand the experience, design it, iterate on it, and then engineer it. Because it, today, engineering is getting more and more commoditized, more and more powerful. Uh, so engineering can do whatever it need, needs to do, but make sure that you're spending the right energy in, in the right places. So knowing the right problem to solve is more important than solving it right. Uh, mm. And uh, and that's kind of... Wait a minute, we, say that again. <laughs> that's uh, a good knowing, knowing the problem to solve is more important than solving it right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and in fact, uh, the same way as I give a military analogy, yes, you can you know be a sharpshooter and you can be a great sniper, but knowing where to aim and where the enemy is going to be is actually way more valuable. Uh, and as user researchers, uh, uh, as that skill provides you uh, a lot of insights around where to focus, how to, uh, you know, where to kind of spend the time, where the biggest friction points are. Uh, so we end up doing a lot of research for companies. We do right. a lot of design for companies. We run the whole process for companies. Hmm. Uh, so so all you that have stuff, engineers on staff too that, that help with some of the design? No. No. So we have people who come from engineering backgrounds, right. back to the uh, the multidisciplinary aspect, but we have we don't do any engineering. So yeah. this is one of the, uh, I would say, things that we have been very deliberate about that, you know, we don't want to be the designer and the creator because we found that there's an intrinsic bias when you become both, uh, where mm. you were trying to create only what, uh, you're only trying to design what you can create. And we believe that that should be two different aspects. The same way as a contractor should not be the architect of a building. The architect should design the right solution and the architect the best solution for what's needed. And the contractor should, you know, make sure that that's kind of built to uh, the design. You uh, uh, very kindly sent along your book, User Experience Design, a practical playbook to fuel business growth. Having a chance to read it cover to cover, but I'm enthralled by it. We were talking a little bit about that before. And I'd mentioned the user empathy play. And I, I thought that was just excellent because I can remember back in my days at both Procter and Disney, you know, talking to some of the folks that were responsible for some of the design, whether it was software or anything else. And they just literally didn't have a clue. It was so hard to communicate to them, um, you know, what we were trying to do. And uh, let's just say there was a, a very high lack of empathy. <laughs> so I was happy to see that. When did you write the book? Has this been something that's come out recently or uh, something that was kind of the foundation for UX Reactor? So the, the system behind the book was our first thing we created. Uh, so yeah. when Prasad and I got together, we said, what are we actually even saying we want from people so we created the system we started training talent from that system and then that became the the core of our consulting team uh, or what we call catalyst in our uh, line of work uh, and then uh, eventually we realized that uh, a lot of companies have been asking us hey can we leverage this technique can we do what you're doing can, can we get more of people like what you do and again we are a said you know we are a sub hundred person company so uh, we said let's write it up for others to leverage and and, and get the power of what uh, design can drive so that's uh, in 2022 uh, it came out in the market and it's been uh, in in market uh, roughly a little over a year uh, and uh, and it, it's the core of what we do as a firm so for us it's uh, I, it's 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 what we eat sleep and drink uh, but then uh, as it went into the market uh, it's been fascinating uh, yeah. of how people are reacting to it and i also believe it's going to get translated uh, one of our publishers is going to uh, uh, translate in mandarin so it's going to be interesting exactly. how that plays out it's a playbook you know very it's much a playbook, so. yeah. yeah it's got lots of exercises in there and so forth uh, i'm looking forward to put it in place with our team here so so uh, let's talk a little bit about your customer base who do you serve are you mostly enterprise do you work with sme uh, global national tell us a little bit about your customer base 
uh, so to we the degree with, that you can do so without violating confidentials. <laughs> we work with uh, predominantly global companies, and that's the reason why we have a pretty significant global footprint uh, across three continents. Uh, most of our work is in what we call enterprise software. Hmm. Uh, so we design enterprise-grade software. And when we say, what is enterprise-grade software? Uh, it is software uh, or, or digital systems that are created for multi-user, multi-context, multi-modality. Uh, so this is like, you know, hey, if you're designing Uber, that's an enterprise system that has a driver context, that has an admin context, that has a customer service context, that has the passenger context and the different kinds of passenger context. So that's what we call an enterprise system. And we specialize in designing and, and iterating on that. Hmm. Uh, and that's kind of where, where uh, we focus on. Our clients obviously have come from people who want to build uh, a company. So the startups that have a, na- a back of napkin idea and to pretty large you know, multinationals like Nokia's. Uh, and we have seen all of them. We have seen companies that have gone from an idea to a billion dollar valuation. And we have seen companies that have gone from an idea to being sold for nine digit and, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to, it's just fascinating with how, when you really focus on the user and you focus on the real pain points, how the company actually starts activating itself and then getting more and more valuable. How long is that consulting period typically last? Again, it depends on the maturity of the company and so on. But typically, uh, any good enterprise product to be built and engineered and uh, and to kind of start capturing the true market share it deserves is about a three to four year process. Mm. Uh, and uh, so you normally work through that journey with them uh, as their uh, design partner or we help them in some cases enabling building their design uh, function by itself. Uh, but then there's some companies that have already built it and then now are struggling for the next act. Right. Uh, and right. Uh, so that that is, is not going to take four years, but that still is, is adjustments that you make and innovation that you do. So that that's, again, uh, uh, you know, six, seven months, eight months to kind of get that engine started. But this is a continuous process You can because as long as you have users in your system, you constantly are learning from them. You're constantly evolving from them. So... Uh, it's not something that you do and forget. It's something you do again and again and again and again. Now, you do it in-house or you do it, uh, you know, with a partner. That's, again, a choice that many companies make. But not doing it is not an option, at least in today's uh, market. Got it. Got it. And, um, you know, you've obviously transitioned from your early days as a, you know, user experience researcher, you know, doing obviously architecture, et cetera, to now, you know, a CEO. How has how kind of your leadership style evolved over that time? Quite a lot. (laughs) Because for the longest while in your career, you're building your functional expertise. Uh, And uh, as as we build functional expertise, you get better, you do more work, you get better. But then as you become a CEO, you realize that there's some functions you had no idea on. Uh, and uh, and that's that's a shift. Uh, again, it's coming to nine years since you know I've, I've, I've co-founded this firm and then been running uh, a large part of it. Uh, so you learn that you know sales and marketing. I wish I'd spend more time in that function. I, I, if I wish I'd spend more time in building customer support and customer success. And again, I, I've learned my way through the nine years. But these are things that you know, as you become a CEO, you suddenly become the leader of all functions. Right. Uh, and yeah. that that is obviously something that you don't take. Uh, you, I wish I had spent more time learning from my peers at that point. Uh, but uh, you know, again, that's an. Uh, if I was giving myself advice and as my 
my younger self. That's what I would have probably said when <laughs> during the time at PayPal and Citrix, I should have spent more time learning other functions. Yeah, you know, uh, the 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 um, user experience is just such an interesting field when I think about it. And you know, going back to some of my earlier days, how does that impact your company culture? You know, is there a, a certain you know way that you would describe the company? Are are you all pretty um, geographically dispersed? Are you in kind of one location? And you know, how do you go about kind of communicating what you're all about with everyone? So. Two interesting uh, things I would kind of call out there. The first thing is we are uh, located in three continents, but mm. we are centered in, in, in the office in those three continents. So we have a, a, a team in Hyderabad, India. We have a team, we're headquartered in San Francisco Bay Area where I'm located and we also have a sizable team here. And then we also have a team uh, in Colombia, Latin America, in Medellin. Okay. Uh, and uh, all the three, con- while we are distributed, but everyone works in those offices. So we're not distributed uh, everyone's not working from home. And the reason why is uh, we, we, we are in the job of making value out of ambiguity. Uh, mm. and, uh, and that means people come to us with a concept or an idea or a problem, and then we are trying to make something out of it. Uh, and it's a team sport. Uh, and uh, people have to get together. So, in fact, uh, we in, in the studio, in the office we have here in uh, uh, the, the San Francisco Bay Area, we have more writable space than square footage of our office. Uh, so all our walls are writable, all our, you know, there's so much. So we whiteboard a lot, we iterate a lot, we kind of I discuss a lot. So that's why it's, it's a team sport when you're in that location. Right. Uh, that's the first part. So, and that's kind of been a big part. The second part is, again, taking a page of the military, uh, you know, ethos that we have. Everybody across the three continents is, are trained the same way. So a mm. senior designer or a lead designer in any of the three locations is, is equally qualified. Uh, and uh, we, we train people, we, we people rotate across. Uh, and that way, you know, if uh, the one ambiguity is like, if I say I want a competitive analysis between these two experiences or these two products, doesn't matter who's called upon in any of the three locations, they all will come back with a similar quality and a similar outcome. Uh, they may push the boundaries, but then the, at least the minimum barrier is very clearly defined based on their training. And and that's, again, taking a page where how we groom people. And that's kind of, again, back to the how we started the firm. Uh, so anyway, so that's kind of how we are right now. And uh, to talk about culture, it's a very experimental culture. Mm. Uh, if someone has a problem, they define also a couple of solutions to kind of experiment on. So then we let's say, let's experiment it. And which is kind of a big part of how we operate in design. Uh, the second thing is it's all about experiences. So our uh, uh, it's not an employee. Uh, we call them teammates. Uh, and uh, for our clients, they are catalysts. And uh, we actually have uh, our HR team actually has a proper playbook uh, talking about experience design where we talk about employee experiences and everything from the time they interview with us to the point that they leave and become an alumni. Everything is orchestrated as an experience and we think through it and we deliberate. We do the same thing that we do with our products. Uh, so nuances like these is what defines us. And uh, it's fascinating. That we, at, at least one of the benefits of being an entrepreneur is you make your own rules. And uh, <laughs> we trade on that as, as we go here. And it's been a fun place so far. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? I mean, again, the, the good thing is that the people in the firm have been there all the nine years that we have existed. And you see uh, the growth in themselves. You see the growth in yourself. Mm-hmm. We run a fairly transparent organization where we discuss things openly and we discuss everything as a design problem. 
Uh, and if someone says like, you know, hey, everything is framed as a design problem. So it's not them. It's not me. It's it's the problem that we're attacking. Uh, and uh, again, you're always looking forward to how people grow, how the people attack a problem. Uh, and uh, as, as Prasad and I, you know, groomed some of these people from, yeah. you know, from doing other parts of careers. We have people who are fashion designers. Yeah. So that's the other thing. We have uh, 21 different educational backgrounds within our consultants. So we are, wow. I was giving in, uh, we have fashion designers, biology majors, accounting majors, engineering majors, information security majors, just name it. We have every kind of major here uh, uh, from educational backgrounds. And then that allows us to kind of bring that diversity and then allow it again, back to the factor that we want multidisciplinary practitioners. Is there kind of a common thread among all those people that you'd say is the same? Like, for example, curiosity. I mean, that would come to mind as something that would be important as a as a user researcher. Absolutely. I think this line of work itself is a very curious line of work. Mm. Uh, everything is because you're learning new things. Just yesterday, I, I spent like eight hours with, uh, you know, a, a, a leader that ran, runs a hundred person law firm. And we learned, we were just like getting excited about everything we're learning about the law firm because we're helping build a law tech product. Uh, and, but for us, I mean, me, even though it's not, I've been doing this for a while, it, I'm like just fascinating to learn all these domains. So again, curiosity is a big part of it. Experimentation is a big part of it. Uh, being open and being for ideas and trying out things is another thing. If you come in saying that my way is the only way to do it, I mean, it's, yeah. this is not the profession for anyone. Uh, you're constantly iterating. As I said, we live in ambiguity. So, which is also like, if you, if you like, certain order this is also not a line of work because clients pay us to kind of drive and get them the direction that they need to go to so which is uh, so all of that makes a certain level of uh, you know problem solver who's willing to kind of uh, take the exper- uh, you know who's willing to kind of experiment and try out new things and open about it and and being willing to take failure as an answer when they experiment with something and mm-hmm. and start again so that's a very different e- mindset uh, and uh, very quickly you realize if somebody is going to be happy doing this or not within a year or two. Right, right, great. Well, Satyam, we're just about out of time. This has been very, very fascinating. We always have one last question, however, that we ask all our CEO guests, and that's kind of what career and life advice would you give to someone who you know has their eyes on the corner office someday or, like you, wants to be an entrepreneur? I think there are two different uh, perspectives. Uh, again, if somebody wants to be an entrepreneur, I say experiment. I mean, the Today, uh, you know, honestly, uh, the, the whole workforce uh, is very forgiving, in fact, more welcoming of people that have tried something different and may have worked, may not have worked. So, you know, don't don't wait for the day when everything will be perfect. Just experiment and then start doing things. And, and again, if it works out, go build it out. I always, as an entrepreneur, uh, I have always committed, I've always recommitted every one year. So I say, why am I doing it? And is it worth it? Let, for one more year, let's do it. Let's do it. That's how I kind of moved it to nine years. And to the corner office, I think it's uh, it, it, not even a corner office. Any leader, you need to know why you're doing it. And, and automatically, the right people will follow you if you know why you're doing it. Uh, and uh, and I would just say, you know, once you start doing it and you kind of are vulnerable, you kind of are focused on it. Again, as a leader, you don't know it all. You never will know it all but you need to surround yourself with the right people that will help you get there. And again, it's a mission that you, uh, if you know your mission, everyone, the right people will associate. So again, that's my advice to myself, I would say more to anybody else as I was, uh, you know, when I did not know and I was more naive, but uh, it's a fascinating journey, I would say, uh, all through being an entrepreneur and anything and, uh, and being a leader even so. But again, it's a lot of responsibility that also comes with it. 
My guest today, Satyam Kantamini, is the co-founder and chief executive officer of UX Reactor. UX Reactor has successfully guided exponential growth, placing it on the Inc. 5000 and SF Fast 100 list for four consecutive years, demonstrating its position as the fastest expanding firm specializing in user experience design and product strategy. Satyam, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.